0: All right, it's time for another episode of the Crypto 101 Podcast, and we got a special one for you. Our conversation today is actually an interview that we've prepared for our upcoming Digital Currency Summit, which starts March 8th. And this is just one of 47, count them, 47 different interviews that we've gathered for the Digital Currency Summit. And if you want to hear from every single one of them, all you have to do is claim your free ticket right now and yes this is a virtual event that you can watch from the comfort of your own home and it's totally free so to reserve your ticket just go to digitalcurrenciesummit.com and click the link all right so enjoy this preview interview and get ready for a whole lot more at the digital currency summit we are joined today by jack mcdonald who is the ceo of PolySign and Standard Charter and Custody. Is that right? Did I say that correctly?
1: Standard Custody and Trust.
0: And Trust, sorry. Uh, Thank you so much. We're so excited to be here today with you, Jack. Um, Before we even dive in to uh, to, to everything that you're doing, uh, why don't we just get a quick background? Uh, What were you doing before you started running PolySign? uh, And why did you even dive into the crypto industry to get started?
1: Yeah, first of all, thanks very much for having me. It's exciting to be back on your show. I come from a TradFi world like like many of us. Um, Somebody recently told me that it's not TradFi anymore. It's legacy finance, just to make me feel even older uh, than I am in the space. I used to run a company called Conifer, which had a broker-dealer business where we did prime brokerage and trading for hedge funds and family offices. We also had a fund administration business. And I sold those two businesses after bringing on Carlisle, so the broker dealer to Cowan and & Company and the fund admin to ss and through a VC friend of mine met Arthur Brito, who was the original founder of Ripple together with Chris Larson and Jed McCaleb, who had left to start a new company, PolySign, to focus on building out institutional grade infrastructure around custody and settlement for digital assets. And I was not looking for a startup role, not looking to get into uh, crypto and, and blockchain, but couldn't pass up the opportunity to work with Arthur as well as some of our other uh, board members and seed investors. and so I jumped at the chance coming up on four years. It'll be four years uh, in april wow have
0: Have you seen uh, kind of the i mean over the course of the past four years? What was like the regulation and institutional level of acceptance of digital assets uh in compared to how it is now?
1: Four years ago, when I started, I think there were two or three gating items that I thought would be major impediments to institutional adoption. And to some degree, they're still there. One, I was just talking to somebody about. Uh, yesterday had to do with, and these are not in order of importance, but one of them had to do with insurance. It was very much of a cottage industry. Fast forward to today, we use Marsh McLennan as our brokerage. who have done a phenomenal job uh, getting us a crime and policy underwritten by Lloyds of London. And while it's not commonplace uh, to get good insurance, the, the options are much greater than existed a couple of years ago. And that's certainly something, while that's not required from a charter or licensing standpoint, it's really become table stakes. Um, another, um, factor that was, uh, relatively nascent compared to where we are today is the, the regulatory jurisdiction. Many of the custodians that were in the marketplace were unregulated. Many of them were embedded within the exchanges. So you go to an exchange and they can offer you trading as well as custody. Still very much the case today, which, uh, we have a different philosophy around a best practice of segregating those, but the, the state chartering, um, Uh, abilities have increased really in four states, South Dakota, Wyoming, Nevada, and New York. We're based in New York for a number of different reasons. Uh, What was the case four years ago and is still the case today, however, is that FINRA has not approved any broker-dealers to do that. And I think that's a surprise to me relative to what I was thinking four years ago. Four years ago, we wanted to be a qualified custodian for digital assets. You can become a qualified custodian in traditional assets by being a broker-dealer a futures commodity merchant, or a trust bank. And so we looked at the landscape and either could have put in an application with FINRA for a broker-dealer application. I think at the time, there were 30 other applications that were kind of waiting in a backlog there. I have no idea what the number is now. Fortunately for us, we chose not to go that path and went the trust company route. And so in some ways, I think a lot has evolved. New York as a regulator, I think, has really evolved in terms of the foresight they have around digital assets, they've become, I think, um, more accommodating to service providers like ourselves in terms of how we can work with them towards sorts of services and assets that uh, they collaborate with the licensees to support, whereas FINRA has remained a closed door in terms of allowing broker-dealers to touch on that. So that's a that's a difference. Some things have changed, some things have not. And I think the other um, factor that was a consideration of mine four years ago in, in assessing this opportunity is just the comfort level education around what digital assets mean, both for cryptocurrencies, but also other types of non-crypto digital assets, assets that are traditionally um, non-digital, but getting digitized or tokenized over time, whether that's a real estate building, you know, getting fractionalized in terms of the ownership or a VC fund where you could have a, a uh, distributed interest in that, et cetera. And I think the institutional adoption rate has taken a lot longer to play out. I think in a unintended consequence uh, philosophy, COVID really helped to accelerate thinking around how digital assets can be more frictionless in terms of the distribution of wealth, the transfer of wealth. And so we've seen a major increase in institutional interest, I'll say, uh, in the space, uh, particularly over the last year.
0: Lot yeah, of- I just uh, read even uh, earlier this earlier this month, the Bank of New York Mellon announced that they you know it's like one of the oldest banks in, in America. They're going to be custodying assets. Uh, one of the largest banks in J uh, in Japan uh, announced that they're going to be having some some similar involvement. So it just seems like the tidal wave just continues to uh, to really rush over, um, and you know. You you mentioned that you you guys are a trust company and and I think that's a interesting word especially you know in, in kind of the crypto world where we always think trustless but you know trust is a very you know big part of the financial ecosystem it's you know kind of the underpinning of the current financial ecosystem but what does it mean to be a trust company
1: well formally what it means is that we operate under the banking charter in the state of New York and so we have certain rights and responsibilities as a, a licensed trust bank that we need to fulfill acting as a fiduciary on behalf of uh, clients of ours, et cetera. And when you apply for the type of trust company that we and a Coinbase and a Fidelity have in New York for supporting digital assets, you you file what's called a certificate of merit where you ask for whatever the breadth of services is that you want to Uh, be licensed for. In our case, we're licensed to uh, provide custody and escrow services for a broad range of digital assets. And by being a trust company, we are also able to provide those services to securities and non-securities. So if there's something deemed to be a currency that's not a security, a Bitcoin or a commodity, uh, we can custody it. If there's a security token uh, so long as it's registered properly, we can support that asset as well. So it's it's a broader remit uh, that we're allowed to have as a trust company. It certainly comes at a price in terms of the amount of regulatory scrutiny uh, in all sorts of different levels that we need to undergo uh, in terms of annual uh, you know reviews and audits, quarterly reporting with the regulators, uh, an obligation to be reviewed under the auspices of New York Part Five Hundred, you know, cyber policies, et cetera. So there's a lot of uh, reporting and and audit requirements that we need to go through as a trust bank because we're a bank. Mm -hmm. Our particular type of license is a limited purpose trust company. Again, the same license that a Coinbase or a Fidelity has. Uh, Part of that limited purpose restricts the type of activity that we do. And and what's probably most germane to a limited purpose trust company, chartery is the fact that we're non-depository institutions in terms of fiat. So we have fiat on and off ramps with banks like Silvergate and others to allow the exchange of fiat for crypto or crypto for fiat. But technically speaking, you can't come and put a million dollars of USD into our account. You could convert it to a stable coin and we can custody it for you, but we don't hold fiat balances on behalf of our customers.
0: Interesting. So as as, as you know, a guy in your position i imagine you know you're able to interface with lots of different institutions and you hear just you know what they're interested in and kind of what their demands are and just what they're talking about and and i'm curious to know kind of what type of you know assets in the digital world they're interested in primarily so are mm-hmm. they are they just looking for you know stable coin yield are they just looking for bitcoin are they looking for maybe these defi governance tokens or is it you know, just strictly, hey, we're looking how to take our current securities and just put them on a blockchain and make them go more efficiently. You know, what's kind of the main driver from uh,
1: an institutional perspective? We, and I want to add something to my, my prior answer. The other thing that a trust company license allows you to do, and I'm going to segue this into to your next question, is that we qualify as a qualified custodian. And that's really important for institutional investors. Just speaking about the US market. If you are an investment advisor managing more than 150 million of regulatory capital on behalf of clients, the investment advisor act of 1940 requires you to use a qualified custodian. So you cannot self custody. You can't use a custodian that is not a qualified custodian and to be a qualified custodian, you either need to be a broker dealer, an FCM futures commodity merchant, or a trust company. And again, we've already talked through in the digital uh, world, other than warehousing Bitcoin or Ethereum futures, which you could do as a, as a futures commodity merchant, you really have to be a trust bank.
2: Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. And for airbnbers it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters it has available fingerprint recognition and it has ai self-learning chip so the more you use it the more accurate it's going to be you will have no anxiety with the battery charging it is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months but don't worry when it's low it'll give you plenty of weeks notice and also it always comes with a physical key That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit ufeofficialcom slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Ufi Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door.
1: because the broker dealers don't allow that to do. As it relates to the institutional demand, where's it coming from and where's the focus? We've been unbelievably fortunate to have a, a real front row seat in terms of what institutions are looking for through the partnership that we established with Cowan Digital, uh, which is a subsidiary of Cowen Group back in the early summer. We did a series B round that Cowan led and that decision was motivated by a strategic imperative they have to build a digital ecosystem, a digital experience for their institutional clients that really mirrors what they're doing in their traditional global markets offering, but to replicate that in in digital. So everything from trading digital to custody, to lend, to borrow, to stake, margin financing, et cetera, and ultimately to cross margin between your traditional non-digital securities, stocks, bonds, et cetera, and your digital securities. And Cowan undoubtedly first mover in this space and is really making a name for themselves. And so together with Cowan, we have met with over, I would say, 200 institutional clients in the last four to six months and understand and, and, and listening to what it is that they're looking for. And in no particular order, they're looking to use trusted counterparties. You asked about the word trust and a lot of what the underlying ethos of, of the digital uh, ecosystem is replacing trust with truth on a blockchain. However, you can't replace the human element, and so for a lot of these institutions, the desire to continue to do business with a trusted counterpart that they've been trading stocks and bonds with for years, and to be able to add digital to that menu is a very, very important driver that gives a lot of comfort to the other constituents within an investment organization, be it the compliance, the technology people, the finance, the risk, uh, or the board. They're also looking for stable platforms, well-known brands, uh, management teams that understand the ecosystem of the old and the new. At Polysign, we preach evolution, not revolution. So we're not looking to completely upend capital markets uh, as we knew it, as we know it overnight, but really to be a part of building a new operating system for capital markets. It will take time, it will evolve. And so we've built solutions at Standard Custody and Trust that integrate with the traditional capital market operational flows that work. And so being able to support clients who are used to trading on a T plus two settlement basis, but also who wanna trade on an instant settlement basis. Institutional clients are looking for a breadth of products. So while they're starting with the top handful of coins over time that will expand, they're looking to fully service the assets. So you touched on a few of the services staking a very important uh, component for the proof of stake protocols that we're supporting like Solana. And so while we don't currently today have permission from DFS to offer staking ourselves, it's something that we'll be in the process of getting here soon, but we partner with leading uh, providers like a Figment or a block team, and where clients can stake with them but still need to have a custodial relationship. and so we're building you know inroads between uh, the, the staking organizations and ourselves. Mm-hmm. Reporting is a big deal. You know how we integrate with the other fund administrators uh, that are out there, or trading firms, fund administrators, you know, particularly like an MG Stover, a leader in the space that we have a lot of clients in common with how we can support the end reporting that a fund administrator will give to their client on a daily, weekly, quarterly basis uh, from a custody standpoint, all those sort of things matter uh, a lot. And so we look to partner with the best breed partners in the ecosystem on the sell side to deliver the most comprehensive and institutional grade product to the institutional investors and all those different things collectively I think are helping institutional investors gain comfort. They get a regulated insured custodian who understands capital markets, who can work with their service providers to deliver a fully integrated product in the same way that they work you know, in the traditional capital markets. That's really what institutions are, are looking for. It's hard enough to decide what, what coin or what token they wanna to invest in, uh, but how it gets executed and delivered um, is really important. The last thing I'll say, just the other part of your question, we have a different side of our business um, called Polynet, which is focused on building out a blockchain to support instant and atomic settlement for a broad range of asset transfers. So between digital and analog, if you've got some crypto and you want to trade it for my fractional interest in a real estate building, and I want to swap that for some USD, and then you're going to swap that for a, a, a tokenized interest in a VC fund. All those different transfers can happen in isolated islands, if you will. And what we are building is really a connective tissue between those different marketplaces and to be a network of networks. And we are getting a lot of interest from traditional asset managers who see the future of how this technology uh, Web3 really is going to fundamentally change how capital markets operate today. And they're thinking less about crypto and more about Stocks, bonds, real assets that suffer from a lack of liquidity and a lack of transparency, mm-hmm. and those are really exciting POCs that we've got going on there. Wow, no, that's that's
0: tremendous insight, and and it kind of makes me think, you know, of all the other you know kind of digital asset classes that exist. I think there's one that we haven't talked about, and it's um, kind of like this government-backed digital currency. Whereas everything else we've been talking about is kind of you know either a private, you know, privately issued security that's been digitized or just this decentralized kind of um, amorphous community coin. But then there's going to be down the line, you know, five, 10 years, you know, probably a fully digital uh, currency. Do you have any thoughts on, on what that world will look like? And is that going to you know, impede some of the you know, innovations
1: that we've um, kind of taken in the crypto world? It's an excellent question that my thinking is evolving on I've got I've got two views I, I think ultimately governments are here to stay so I don't subscribe to uh, and nor do I want to live in a world without governments we've seen right. in the last 48 hours um, you know some of the perils you know that exist out there that right. said you know how much centralized control should a government have in the currency and it's obvious why governments want to control currencies and yet you have this this threat that's been building from the outside where you could have peer to peer currencies that thwart any sort of government control. And so I think governments recognize that to varying degrees, and they're going to want to have their their hand in the honey jar there to make sure that they've got some level of control. And so they can't turn a blind eye to it because it isn't going away. And yet I think there are and obviously there are some some use cases going on right now, whether they're experiments or POCs or trials around how a given sovereign can actually issue a digital currency that they have some control on, yet will take advantage of the benefits that exist in digital currencies. And so I think that has a yet some time to play out. But at the end of the day, I think that we will see digital currencies backed by governments that still have some level of sovereign control. We are another POC that we're working on. A very exciting one is actually down in the African continent, and it's really geared towards helping NGOs who want to deliver aid to recipients, the unbanked, how they can do that in a way that reduces as much friction as possible and as much cost to ultimately deliver the intended value to these recipients and working with um, several African governments to actually um, make that a reality. And so there are instances where I think there is really solid intentions about embracing the use of digital and, and cryptography and blockchain to create a common good that will actually benefit uh, a local population, as opposed to what we often think about with government is just controlling the float, uh, yeah. controlling the issuance of currency. So I think there's gonna be a number of different applications that come out, but as you suggest, I think it's gonna be a very active next couple of years in this regard. Wow. Fantastic. And, and there's just such
0: a, a breadth of opportunity and um, you know, how this technology is going to get leveraged by, by every party and by every, um, you know, kind of class of citizen. Um, now, the last thing I kind of wanted to, to ask is in regard to the, the Bitcoin ETF. And now, you, you know, you're a securities guy, you have, a, you know, a, a, a history and a background in, in that market. Now, I, I mean, what's the holdup? Like, what, what's the big holdup? And, and people are getting, you know, sending letters to the SEC. Um, what's going on there? And I when are we that- going to get
1: one? I think it is. I was wrong. I thought we'd have one at the end of last year. I think I made that prediction early in, in 2021. Um, to me, it's inevitable because there's going to continue to be more and more um, ETFs that are trading outside the US. And so I think the SEC has to, and I, and hey, the SEC, I think on balance does a very good job and historically has done a very good job of ultimately protecting the end investor Uh, from financial products that are not suitable for them. And there's obviously a balance. I don't want Big Brother telling me what I can and can't do all the time. I totally understand and embrace that. But at the end of the day, for the less sophisticated investors, particularly having a a government um, branch acting as a fiduciary, I think, has resulted in uh, much greater access to the capital markets for a greater range of the population. And to do it in a safe and controlled way has been a net positive. Digital assets, as we were just talking about, represent a new type of asset that represents threats um, and, and questions that the government, I think I think the, the non-government side, I think, has gotten a little further ahead of understanding the benefits and, and now the, the bad actors, if you will, or bad use cases are true corner cases, right? That wasn't the case 10 years ago today. They're true corner cases. And the the, the net positive far outweighs those. And I think the government recognizes that i think they're just playing a little catch up i think they want to be very deliberate when they approve something where they really have a good balanced sense of of control uh, around that and so i think it's inevitable that we'll get one i think they're just being extra cautious and i understand how that's frustrating uh, to, to many but i think we'll we'll see some type of of regulated product coming out and hitting the market at some point this year i just think it's inevitable because if not people are just going to go out continue to go outside the u.s whether it's canada or europe and get access to these products absolutely
0: all right well i think that's a, a fantastic place to wrap the discussion jack thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate your time and uh we look forward to having you back on uh Anytime. when
1: there's some more announcements with poly We'll have more coming. We've got a lot of good things in the hopper, so I look forward to staying in touch and really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you.